Selling a little or a lot? Shopify helps you do your thing however you cha-ching. Shopify is the global commerce platform that helps you sell at every stage of your business. From the launch your online shop stage to the first real-life store stage. All the way to the did we just hit a million orders stage. Shopify is there to help you grow. Shopify helps you turn browsers into buyers with the internet's best converting checkout. 36% better on average compared to other leading commerce platforms. Because businesses that grow, grow with Shopify. Get a $1 per month trial period at shopify.com slash work. Shopify.com slash work. Why do people go bald? Why are baboons' bums red? What's a light year? Why do leaves go brown in the autumn? Why do monkeys like bananas? Why do some things glow in the Why dark? Why do animals not understand humans? Why do my feet fade after a year? Don't know the answer? Ask the Naked Scientists. Hello and welcome to this week's Ask the Naked Scientist with me, Sue Marchant, Dave Ansell and Chris Smith. Let's see what we have first. Now, Matt understands that the brain is moist. Does this mean it can dry? And if it does, what can this cause mental problems? Well, the brain is, in fact, the consistency of blancmange because most people think of the brain as a bit like a stiff cauliflower. But if you were to, to pick up a brain, until it's been put in a chemical called a fixative, which makes it stiff, the tissue is very, very similar in consistency to a, a, a damp blancmange. So if you imagine when you turn the blancmange out from a mould and it wobbles on the plate rather like a jelly, that's exactly the consistency of brain tissue in its native state. So it's very spongy, very soft and very easy to damage. And for this reason, the brain suspends itself in liquid inside your skull. So the brain and spinal cord are dangling supported by various uh, ligamentous structures in this body of fluid inside your head and that's called the cerebrospinal fluid and this keeps the brain well suspended and, and also wet because the brain's in equilibrium with the liquid in the bloodstream. Now if you get very, very dehydrated because of various reasons then the water that's in the brain can move out of the brain into your blood vessels to try to keep everywhere in your body having the right amount of water. That's that osmosis principle Dave was talking about. And this can lead to brain shrinkage. So if someone gets very, very dehydrated, their brain can shrink. And on the opposite sort of flip side of the coin, if you make someone overhydrated, so someone takes too much liquid into their body, mm. then every tissue in the body, including the brain, can swell up as well. And that was exactly what happened when people were taking ecstasy. And there was one classic case um, of Leah Betts, who died, unfortunately, through mm. taking ecstasy. When people would take ecstasy, they tend to get very, very hot because they become very active, they dance too much, they don't cool off properly. And then they drink huge amounts of water, and the water dilutes the bloodstream and the excess water now in the bloodstream moves out into the brain and swells the brain up. And because the brain is encased in your skull and the skull can't expand, it causes the brain to build up pressure on itself, pushing on itself, and this causes it to go wrong. So, yes, that's an absolutely excellent question. The brain can get bigger and smaller according to how much water there is in your body. Is the way that I get a headache when I'm dehydrated related to damage in the brain? Uh, headaches can be related to dehydration, uh, you usually find that you'll get a headache if you don't drink enough during the day and you mm. are a bit dry, but the usual reason you've got a bit dry is because you have been too busy doing something and concentrating, working on something for too long, and therefore part of it could be that you've just got what's called a tension headache, and this is where the muscles that go up the back of your neck and over the top of your skull, the scalp muscles, they're under too much tension and they hurt. And that's a tension headache. 
No. Okay, thank you very much, Dr. Chris. Now, last night, because the temperature was dropping down, I was thinking about gritting, and Den actually sent me an email in saying, it's okay, sand and grit. He said, but um, the salt that they put on it all, of course, is damaging the environment. How comes? Well, the reason why they add salt to the... I uh, put the salt in the road, is that the salt, um, when it mixes with water, it tends the water tends to get a bit lost in amongst all the salt mo- molecules and uh, ions in there. Um, and so it would... So it tend, it's harder for it to find back find the ice again so it tends to make water li- tends to turn um, ice into liquid it reduces the point the temperature at which um, ice water freezes and turns into ice so if the temperature is sort of minus two or three if you put some salt on the road um, the, temp- the point at which the, li- the salty water will now melt is now minus five, so it's liquid, so you don't slip up and you don't injure yourself. And in the same way as um, the water tends to get a bit lost in amongst the salt um, it, from the ice, if you've got a, a living cell, so a plant or something, water will tend to get come out from it and get sort of lost in amongst the salt. It'll tend to suck water out of plants and dry them out. And this isn't very good for them, and they often die quite quickly. That's why slugs shrivel up, isn't it? Yeah, exactly the same reasons why slugs shrivel up. It sucks the water out of them by process called osmosis. Sucks water out of them, they, they all dry up, and then they kind of basically can, can die if it's too much. It used to be a kind of almost a form of, um, not kind of weapon of mass destruction, but a really evil thing the Romans used to do, I think, to Carthage. Um, they really didn't like the Carthaginians, and they beat them in the war. So what they did was they just dug salt into the fields around their city, so as nothing would grow for like 50 or 60 years, or definitely five or ten years, so the city collapsed and then got entirely lost. So that's quite scary then. So maybe um, the, the warming up the planet is to stop us from sticking salt down on the roads and damaging our environment. In one way, yes. <laughs> there are always upsides of every problem. Well, yes, there, there are. There is a more environmentally friendly option, though, isn't there, Dave, which is the flavour that goes on salt and vinegar crisps, which is, of course, sodium acetate. That's in some places used instead of table salt, rock salt, mm. because it uh, makes the water freeze an even lower temperature than sodium chloride. So it can be used when the temperatures are very, very, very low. But the bad news is it's very expensive. Hmm. Now, Agnes wants to know what the colourant uh, was that she had to drink before her CT tomography scan. OK, well, when you have a CT, that stands for computed tomography. This is a computerised X-ray scan. You take a substance into the body which goes into the body and depending upon which bit of the body you're looking at, it tends to congregate in that area. Now, most of these what are called contrast agents... Some of them stay just in the guts, so if you're looking at the intestinal walls, then what the agent does is it coats the inside surface of your guts so that when the x-rays go through, it soaks up the x-ray wherever the substance is more than other tissue. And this gives a very clear outline of, say, the tube through your body so that if there are any abnormalities or tight spots, they can be easily seen by the radiologist. Another reason why you give contrast for these things is that if you have, say, leaky blood vessels in one place, so say someone's had a stroke, and you want to see which bit of the brain has been affected, if you give one of these contrast agents, then it tends to go into the part of the brain where the blood vessels have been damaged and the tissue is damaged by the stroke. So you can see very well where the part of the body is that's been affected. So this is what's called luxury enhancement, that's what it's called. And so these agents that you give tend to be substances that soak up X-rays. So they're heavy substances, they're very dense chemicals, and they are opaque to X-rays. So in the same way as, say, a piece of lead is opaque to X-rays, then you can give 
a smaller version of the piece of lead in chemical form, but not so toxic, which goes into the body and soaks up x-rays in certain places. And that's exactly how it works, because when the x-ray goes through from the scanner, then it gets soaked up in these, in these places where the contrast agent has accumulated and it goes straight through other bits of the body where there isn't any contrast agent, and it gives that very, very clear definition as to the affected area. Yeah, you basically want fairly large atoms because large atoms will absorb um, X-rays well. And so in your bones, you've got quite a lot of calcium, which is relative to quite a large atom. So that's the reason why bones will stop X-rays quite well. So you see the shadows of them on the X-ray picture, mm. which is actually what you're looking at. And I think, isn't it a barium? Barium's quite a good absorber because the famous one's a barium meal, which you drink, Chris. That's right. You can look at the esophagus by what's called a barium swallow. So you give someone uh, a barium-containing liquid to drink, and the barium's in an, in an insoluble form, so there's no danger of it actually getting into your body because barium is actually toxic. But the form in which you give it for these kind of studies, it's not soluble, so it stays in the guts and it comes out the other end, but it is very good at soaking up X-rays. Other ones are, as Dave said, calcium-based things, anything with big atoms that are very dense that soak up X-rays. Mm. How long does it take for the body to discard them? It depends on the chemical you give and where you give it. Uh, most of these agents are pretty harmless, and they go through the blood vessels and then they get filtered out by the kidney because the ones that you put into, say, a blood vessel for looking at the brain, that one is soluble. And those agents go into the bloodstream, get filtered through your kidneys, and then the contrast agent filters out into the urine that your kidney makes, and so it slowly gets lost from the body. And another place, it can get lost in bowel motions as well mm. that way. So it just depends on how much water is passing through the body or uh, basically how often you go into the loo. Mm. All right, Agnes, so um, no need to worry, and we hope that your results are positive and uh, that you're OK. Let's get on to the um, environmental effect of the massive massive firework displays that we've had quite a lot of over the festive season. Heidi wants to know, what is that environmental effect of fireworks? Um, I mean, there's all sorts of things in fireworks, not all of them very nice. I mean, basically, you're making an explosive, and that takes quite a lot of energy. So, first of all, to make the firework, you've got to burn quite a lot of carbon. Um, you need a lot of energy, so you're going to burn quite a lot of carbon. So, <coughs> so that will tend to add to the greenhouse effect. Um, another, probably the biggest problem with fireworks are the things they use to make the beautiful colours, which tend to be metals. Quite a lot of them are called transition metals. Um, sort of, some of them are called, what you know as heavy metals, and some of them are slight, quite toxic. A few of them slightly radioactive. Um, they're not used in very large quantities, and they're probably unless you sat there breathing in firework fumes all the time, you're probably not going to do a lot of damage to yourself. But I mean, if you probably, it's probably not ideal firing fireworks, but it's probably not going to cause a huge problem on itself. About you, Chris? Uh, the best people who have looked into this is Disney, because as anyone who's ever been to Disney, either in Europe or over in the States, knows, they have a huge firework display for everybody who comes every week. And they are often associated with water, and the fireworks are released over a pond or a lake or something. And that's partly for safety, but it also because it looks nice with the reflections and things. But water is very useful because it congregates and aggregates all of the fallout from the fireworks. And so you can sample the sediments in the ponds and see how many vestiges of the fireworks you're seeing. And now this is Disney's own data, and I got this from a guy who got into the Guinness Book of Records for detonating 30,000 rockets in less than 30 seconds. Uh, and so he made some inquiries about the health implications for his health and safety form, and he got this data off Disney. So I don't know if it's actually been confirmed with other people, but Disney say in all the years they've been doing this, they can't find any evidence of 
increased levels over baseline of the kinds of toxins that Dave's referring to, which are very real. They're definitely there in the fireworks. So the conclusion we can draw from this is that most of those contaminants, they are present at tiny levels, are going into the smoke that the fireworks produce and then they're blowing away. The other conclusion is, of course, that all the crowd breathe them in and take them home with them, which is the other possibility. Don't do that, it's dangerous. Right, OK, thank you very much indeed. Um, Lynn would like to know um, what causes restless legs and can it be stopped or cured? But first of all, we have Alan from Orpington on the line. Good evening, Alan. Hello, Lisson. Hello. What's your question for Dr Chris and Dr Dave? Um, it's kind of a double-barrelled question. Um, what is vascular dementia? And um, in the case of um, my, one of my parents, um, they're having hallucinations. Can you explain that and why these hallucinations seem so real to them? That's right. Well, I'm very sorry to hear about that, but, yeah, I'll try and help you. Um, dementia means damage to brain tissue, and dementia usually implies a progressive thing that gets worse over time. Now, with vascular dementia, that means the cause of the dementia is due to the blood supply to the brain. Now, as someone gets older, in fact, all of us get older, then the blood vessels we have around our body get stiffer and they also get blocked by fatty deposits called atheroma. And this can interrupt the flow of blood to different tissues. And if it happens in the brain, then bits of brain tissue can die in the same way that bits of your heart muscle can die if you have a heart attack. Now, this damage to the brain leads to progressive loss of your cognitive function and it can mimic certain other diseases that affect the brain. So it can cause symptoms a bit like Alzheimer's. It can cause a loss of ability to move carefully and perform fine movements. It can cause other problems, including mood changes and, in, and also things like hallucinations. It might be that there's more than one thing going on. So there may be some vascular dementia and there may also be another kind of dementia underneath it. So you have two conditions going on at once, and one may be producing one type of condition and one may be producing predominantly the other kind of condition. When, when I spoke to the doctor, they said, your mother's brain is shrinking. What does that mean in, in relation to that? Is that just another way of describing it? Well, when you lose brain tissue because either the cells die because of old age or the cells die because the blood supply to bits of the brain is damaged and those cells die then they take up less space, and so the brain does shrink. And when doctors and scientists do a brain scan, radiologists put someone in a brain scanner, you can measure quite accurately how big different parts of the brain are. You can estimate their volume, and if you do scans over time, you can see how the brain size is changing and how different bits of the brain are changing in volume. And we also have very good data for the general population. So if someone has a brain scan, you can then compare the size of their brain to the average size of a brain, and this can give you some clues as to whether someone's brain is smaller than it should be, and this can help to confirm the diagnosis of what sort of problem they might have. Right. And one final thing, what makes them believe the hallucinations? What kind of thing is it that makes them believe that that is actually happening? It seems... Well, the same... In the same way that your brain says that can't be happening, if the part of the brain that, that says that can't be happening goes wrong, then your brain will believe anything. Because at the end of the day, you live in a world that your brain creates for you. And you have a part of your brain that can tell right from wrong, it can tell true from false, it can tell reality from make-believe. But if those parts of the brain start to go wrong, then 
you have no way of discriminating what's real and what isn't. Yeah. And what's really interesting about certain conditions with the brain, if you, if you look at people who are unfortunate enough to suffer from, say, schizophrenia, then they can actually have very good brain function, but whatever it is that they're hallucinating about or their delusions that they have, they absolutely believe with total conviction, and you can't persuade them otherwise. That's right. For instance, I, I met a man who was convinced that... Uh, the television presenters were f were listening into his thoughts through his television and then sending him messages back in their body language about things he had to do during the day. And he was getting their messages back as voices in his head. And when he was treated and his symptoms improved, he'd no longer suffered from the voices in his head and and, and the, the problem was getting better. But if you asked him, so do you still believe that the television presenters were sending you messages through their body language and talking into your head? He would say, yes. Yeah. Uh, it is a terrible thing getting older, and unfortunately more and more of us are going to suffer from these problems because as we get better and better at making people live longer, the one thing we can't repair at the moment is the brain. And this means we're going to see more and more people with these kind of symptoms. But luckily, there are some drugs coming along which do help to improve the symptoms a bit. They're not brilliant, and no. there are side effects, but they can, in some people's cases, make things a bit better. So it might be that that could help you. Lots of love to you, and thank you very much for your question. OK, so... OK, bye-bye. Right, restless legs, then. I know that Dave likes to do lots of dancing. Do you suffer from restless legs? not quite sure what it would mean directly. Right. Da uh, Chris, restless legs. If you had this, Dave and Sue, you would know exactly what it is because it's the most annoying thing and it drives people to distraction. It's a condition where people cannot stop their legs wanting to move and it doesn't happen all the time, but it tends to be provoked by getting tired. Uh, when you want to go to sleep, you, you end up with these horrible, writhing, annoying movements in your legs. So it has to be a neurological problem, but it's quite poorly understood. No one really has got to the bottom of it. It doesn't tend to come and go. It, if people have it, they tend to find that the same situation provokes it all the time when they get tired or when it's bedtime or when they're trying to sleep or sometimes during the day. So I think if you had it, you'd have it all the time. You wouldn't be able to turn it on and off. It's, it's a bit like, um, say, Tourette's syndrome, where people make funny movements which they don't want to make, but they're automatic, they occur unconsciously. It's a bit like that. Hmm. Can it be cured? Well, we don't really know exactly what causes it, and we don't actually know therefore how to stop it but there are some drugs that can make it a bit better but in order to diagnose it you have to see a neurologist who can actually confirm that's definitely what it is and it's not life-threatening it's not killed anybody no one's actually had a problem with it and it doesn't mean you're going to suffer from other problems in the future it's just an inconvenience and it's a real pain for the people who who have it mm. all right well rex has asked we are told to wash our hands to prevent germs but is it better to use hot or cold water <laughs> uh, I would say probably warm water because if the water's freezing cold you're less likely to wash your hands properly because you can't stand having them under the freezing cold water especially the water that's coming in through my water tap this evening because it's so cold outside but if you use warm water soap will work better as well and we know the number one best thing for detaching microorganisms bacteria, viruses and fungi from your skin is just soap and water and it's the rubbing action of skin on skin as well as the soap that helps to detach them and wash them off. So I would say warm water, some soap because it works well and a good vigorous rubbing action. Yeah, I would have thought warm water would work a lot better as well because the surface tension, which is what pulls water into little globules, is much stronger in cold water. So in warm water, the water is much better at spreading over your skin and spreading round lumps of dirt and germs. Hmm. All right. Well, I hope, Rex, I hope that's um, helping you there. Now, a gentleman has called in. He's been told he has high cholesterol but was not given much advice uh, 
um, apart from being told to avoid processed foods, what are the good things to put in his packed lunch sandwiches? Okay, well, well, cholesterol is a fatty molecule. It's a series of, of ring structures, chemical rings of carbon atoms joined together, and, they, and it almost looks like a sheet of glass when you look at it because the rings are all connected together in one plane. And cholesterol is made in the body. The cells, every cell in our body can make cholesterol. So eliminating cholesterol from your diet is absolutely useless as, re- as a way of reducing blood cholesterol if you have a high cholesterol level. The reason people are worried about a high cholesterol level is because... Uh, High cholesterol is associated with the furring up of arteries, atheroma, atherosclerosis. But not all forms of cholesterol are bad. It's so-called HDL and LDL cholesterol, good and bad cholesterol, respectively. And it's the LDL cholesterol which is said to be bad for you. That's most atherogenic. It's most bad for your blood vessels. The thing that causes a high cholesterol is saturated fat in your diet. So the more fat you put in your diet, the higher your cholesterol level will be in the blood after your meal. And the reason for that is that in order to soak up things that are fatty in the diet, the liver squirts out bile from your gallbladder. And bile is a mixture of fats and cholesterol and other chemicals called bile salts, which help to break up bodies of fat and lumps of fat into tiny particles called micelles. And then they get absorbed inside the the cells that line your intestines. And they can also be worked on more easily by enzymes that break them down. So if you put lots of fat into your diet, then lots of cholesterol-rich bile will come out of the liver and then get absorbed into the bloodstream to help you absorb fat from your diet. So if you want to lower cholesterol, try and reduce the amount of fat you eat, and especially the amount of saturated fat you eat. So things like butter, lard, hard cheeses... Cheese is very bad because uh, it, it's mainly about it's about 50% fat by weight. But also things like chocolate and, and other processed foods, which might also contain a lot of salt, which puts your blood pressure up. They're, they're bad. Good things are cereals, so starches, roast potato. Try and avoid hard cheese because uh, this contains a lot of saturated fat. And other things include red meats because they tend to be quite rich in saturated fat. Try and go for white meats like chicken. Much better for you. Mm, okay. does, does this mean that um, sort of unsaturated fats like vegetable oil are a lot better? And do they not actually produce as much cholesterol to absorb them? Or do you not? They are. They are better for you, but it's not because they produce less cholesterol. It's because they are associated with a higher level of HDL, the good form of cholesterol and hdl is associated with carrying cholesterol out of your body back towards your liver and ldl carries cholesterol out of the guts and around your body so the higher the hdl that you have in the blood the less risk there is to your body because the hdl is a good form of cholesterol and so things like polyunsaturated fats olive oil for example and vegetable oils they increase the hdl and decrease the ldl whereas saturated fats increase your ldl and therefore they increase your risk of getting blocked up arteries so am i okay then with my olive oil Oh, no, definitely. People have done trials on olive oil and, and shown that it's actually very good for reducing... Uh, well, it produces a modest reduction in cholesterol and I think it, it also produces a modest increase in your HDL. So mm. it boosts your good cholesterol. And this is said to be part of the reason why people from the Mediterranean, people who live in Italy, Crete, south of France, who have a diet which is very high in fat, but all their fat is monounsaturates, olive oil, they're said to live longer for that reason, because it it boosts the good cholesterol and reduces the bad cholesterol. Good, I only use olive oil. And it's Ask the Naked Scientist with me, Sue Marchant, Dr Chris and Dr Dave. And now, John of Essex says, apparently there will be an unmissable meteor shower in the early hours of tomorrow morning. Does the relevant doc think it's worth wasting my beauty sleepover, or should he, he carry on dreaming undisturbed? 
Um, I think the um, meteor shower he's talking about are called the quadradids, quadrandids, yep. something like that. Um, there again, the, the Earth is moving through an area of dust in in the space, mm-hmm. and this dust is moving very fast compared to the Earth. So when the little lumps of dust, little lumps of even ice, hit the atmosphere very very fast, the huge amount of friction, like when you rub your head, hands together, it gets hot. This is like hitting it at twenty five thousand, hitting the atmosphere at twenty five thousand miles an hour, it gets really hot. It glows, and you see these streaks in the sky. Um, the quadrandids are supposed to be very, very unreliable. It's quite a small area of space with this dust in it. It's probably a comet tail or um, some uh, asteroid falling apart. Um, so if the Earth happens to hit the right place, then you'll get quite a, long fl- a lot of... Um, you get a high density of meteors. You get should have quite a good show on. Um, the peak, it's supposed to be at about sort of probably about now, a bit earlier than now. So if you go outside and have a look at the, if it's clear where you are, go outside, have a look for a couple of, for you know ten fifteen minutes at the sky. You might see some beautiful meteors. All right, okay, well, like that sort of thing. If you can see them, it's very cold out there though to go and observe, isn't it? This yeah, time of year. The problem with meteors this time of year, you've got to be waiting for quite a long time, and you've got to be quite still, and especially somewhere quite dark, and it tends to be a bit cold. The best ones are in the summer, where you can just lie on the ground for hours, just watch, waiting for them. All right, um, Dr. Chris, Dr. Dave, and uh, um, anybody who's maybe not feeling well, Joy would love to know which flu is the best to drink if you have this sickness bug, which is just awful if you do get it. Yes, I think that you're probably talking about the norovirus or norwalk-like virus, as it used to be called. This is a viral infection which causes a very profound, rapid-onset, nasty diarrhoea and vomiting episode or series of episodes. It tends to have an incubation period of about 12 hours, and it's really easy to catch. The viral particles are 30 nanometers across. Now, that means that they're about one twenty-thousandth of a millimeter in diameter. Absolutely tiny. The particles of smoke that come off the end of a cigarette are tinier than that virus. And because they're so tiny, these viruses, whenever someone is sick, they just go... And you end up with viral particles coming up in the air all around the sick and around the sicky person. And they then diffuse around in the air. And if you're unlucky enough to walk near them and breathe those particles in, you can get infected by just one of them. And they go into the stomach and the outside of the virus is like a hand grenade. And it's primed by the stomach acid. So the stomach acid does the viral equivalent of pulling the pin out and this primes the virus so as soon as it leaves the stomach and goes into the small intestine it can start latching onto cells along the lining of the small intestine and infecting them and it turns the cells into virus factories and each cell produces thousands if not millions of new virus particles and because it injures the wall of the gut the gut says I don't feel very happy so it triggers vomiting and vomiting is the body's defence mechanism for getting rid of things that are bad. Mm. Of course, this is also how the virus spreads, so it wants you to chuck up. Mm. And when you have diarrhoea with it, which is also because of irritation to the intestinal lining, then you shed in each, I think, cubic centimetre, so each millilitre of faeces, there can be a million and up to 100 million virus particles. So it's really infectious, Mm. and those particles are really hardy. They can survive for ages in the environment. The way to stop them catching them in the first place is to wash your hands very carefully uh, if you've been in public lavatories or in places like hospitals, anywhere where these gut bugs are. Mm. And so don't touch food and don't eat, don't lick your fingers and don't suck your pen, for example, if you've been there. And try to avoid places where people have been ill, at least until they've been cleaned up. If you do get it, then the order of the day is rehydration because you're losing huge amounts of fluid from the body. And if you lose fluid, this can reduce your blood pressure 
this can make you feel dizzy it can make you feel unwell obviously because you're you you aren't eating so you haven't got enough food coming in you've got no no energy so your body's struggling to make you feel very energized so the best thing to do is to wait until you stop actually being being really really sick mm. because if you're not careful when your stomach's that irritated as soon as you put something back in it'll just try and throw it up again so build up gently with small sips of water is a good place to start just boil water and if you can try and get someone to go to the chemist for you and get you some oral rehydration salts now these are packets they one trade name is diorolite mm -hmm. and they're packets containing salt and sugar which when you dissolve them in the right amount of water produce what's called an isotonic solution this is where the concentration of salts in the solution is right for your body fluids mm -hmm. so when you take this fluid in it partitions or dissolves or moves across the intestinal lining equally between the gut and the blood so it, it moves fluid back into your dehydrated body at the right concentration if you get the concentration wrong and you just drink salty water then it will have the opposite effect and pull even more water out of your body and dehydrate you more so you have to get the concentration right which is why it's worth buying the packet mm -hmm. and then the good news with norovirus is that the symptoms normally begin to disintensify, so disappear within 24 hours. So it's normally a one-day thing, and then you feel much better. If you don't feel much better, something's going wrong, or it's not norovirus. So it normally, luckily, it's only a one-day or one-and-a-half-day thing at worst. But it's very infectious. So mm. if you've got it, try and, try and sort of create your own exclusion zone in your home. Use a toilet that's just for you and a sink just for you and keep everyone away from you, and hopefully they won't catch it. Right, OK. Uh, I want to know what's coming up on The Naked Scientist on Sunday evening. OK, well, this week we thought, because it's the first show of the new year, 2008, that we'd look at what most people are trying to do this year, which is give something up. And so we're <laughs> going to look at the science of addiction. Why do we get addicted to things? What's the brain chemistry that's involved in addiction? Why should we have a brain system that lets us get addicted to things? What's the evolutionary benefit of that? Well, there is one, and that is that it's there to help us learn to do good things better. But unfortunately... Unfortunately, it can also go wrong and help us to become hooked on stuff. But can we break that cycle? Well, yes, we can. And we're going to be finding out how we can break the cycle and how we can help get people off things. Plus, we're going to be finding out about the other thing people often try and do after the Christmas blowout, which is shed a bit of weight. We'll be looking at why diets are often destined to fail and the best diets to follow if you don't want to fail, how to shed some weight. Right, OK. So, <laughs> well, addiction, yes, it's a strange thing, addiction, isn't it? Now, um, Dr Dave, one for you here, because you've been sat there. A quiet evening, yes. Um, Pat has uh, called in and says, Why does water still flow down, even high up a mountain, when there is no rain or snow falling? Yeah, with a, if you imagine, if, you, if the mountain was made out of perfectly waterproof, it was like a steel mountain, then that's what you'd expect. It would rain, the water would run off the surface immediately, run straight down, and then after you know, a few hours it would all have run off and there'd be no more water to fall down and it would all be dry. However, real mountains aren't actually waterproof. Um, the rock on them's got lots of little cracks in it, the soil's got lots of area. It actually acts more like a sponge. If you've ever taken a sponge out of a bath and then left it there hanging there, yeah. instead of water run out of it you know five for you know, 10 20 30 seconds uh -huh. now if you scale up that sponge the size of a mountain um and what you put rain on it a month ago there's still going to be it's still going to be dry it's still going to be work, working its way out sort of days weeks months even years after the water actually fell on the mountain and the other effect is that if you've got snow sitting at the top of the mountain when it gets hot the snow melts so you don't actually have to it raining you'll still get water coming out of the mm. snow and it's just by heating up and melting the snow mm. it's a porous world <laughs> 
Now, um, why do different oils have different smoking points? Rapeseed oil is higher than most and is excellent for cooking. Tastes good too. But what about what about olive oil? Or some groundnut oil? I, th- I think olive oil's got a fairly low smoking point because it's not very good for deep fat frying. Um, it's all to do with how well the molecules stick to each other. Um, because what's happening when it's smoking, basically the oil starts to boil and then the, the oil, instead of being a liquid, it turns into a gas. It boils off the, off the top of the oil and then as it cools down in the air, it condenses into little droplets and those little droplets, what you see is smoke, exactly the same as it happens with a kettle. When the kettle's boiling, the water boils, it condenses into little droplets of water. So it's all to do with how well the molecules stick to each other. Um, some oils, in general, if the oil molecules are longer, then they'll tend to tangle up with each other. They've got more places where they can bond, they can kind of get attracted to other molecules, fire force or the van der Waals force. So the longer the molecules, the higher the temperature at which they're going to boil, so the higher the smoking point. Um, and also, if the molecules have got any kind of chemical groups which tend to bond well to each other, um, I, I'm not an expert on it, so I wouldn't be able to tell you what types you need to talk to a chemist, but th- that can affect the temperature at which things boil. Um, and actually, if they stick to each other really, really well, so if you get really long um, oil chains, they won't even melt at room temperature, and that's what we call a wax. Barry wants to know why eating asparagus makes your urine smell. Now, now, this is all down to the smelly chemical sulphur. When you eat asparagus, it's got a lot of proteins which are u- built using a building block, an amino acid building block in it, that's got this sulphur in it. And when you eat asparagus, your body dismantles the proteins into these building blocks, these amino acids, which it then pulls to pieces and gets the sulphur out, and it forms from the sulphur uh, a chemical which is soluble in water, so it goes out of your liver, which is breaking it down, into the bloodstream, and because it's dissolved in water, when the blood goes through the kidney to get filtered, then some of the sulphur-containing chemicals filter out into the urine that the kidney is producing, and as a result, they accumulate in the urine over time, and it makes it smell. And it really, really does smell quite strongly. It just, just one sprig of asparagus is enough to make you have really whiffy-wee. Do I remember hearing that that doesn't happen to everybody? Because I've eaten asparagus a few times and haven't noticed it at all. There's a question over whether it's actually your ability to produce the chemical in the first place or your ability to smell it. And there's a bit of a disagreement about whether it's just that everyone's producing it, but some people just can't smell it. And as a result, they think they don't make it, but they do. Mm. Thank you for that. And there's a, a couple of things here. You might have been asked this question before by blokes my age. He says I'm 50. Why is nature so cruel to take my hair from my head and put it in my nose? Uh, because it doesn't necessarily have a bad effect on your health. It just makes you feel bad about yourself. Uh, It means it's at a very high level in the population. The genes that cause this to happen is genetic, are carried by the vast majority of people. And it's exposure to testosterone, the male hormone, that seems to cause hair follicles in certain distributions on the body to fall out on your head and increase their density on other bits of the body. So as you get older, then the nose hair seems to grow longer and more thick and richly ear hair the same, chest hair, hair on the back and shoulders, legs and arms, but from the top of the head, disappears. So no one really understands exactly what chemistry is involved, but it's something to do with the metabolism of testosterone in those tissues. Is there anything we can do about it? Yes, there is. You can have a chemical castration, so you can reduce your levels of testosterone. Some people do go to those lengths, bizarrely enough. You can take drugs that will switch off your production of testosterone, and this chemical castration will mean that if you're at risk of losing your hair, you can hang on to it. It won't bring back what you've lost, but it'll stop you losing any more. There are also some drugs you can take, which 
which cut down the metabolism of testosterone into its derivatives, which seem to be linked to the hair loss. And those drugs will also similarly reduce the risk of hair loss. And then there are some other topical agents you can rub into the scalp that also affect the metabolism of testosterone, and they can slow down. They don't stop, but they can slow down the, the loss of hair. But again, you cannot bring back what you've lost. The only way you can do that is either with a syrup, syrup of figs, wig, or you can... Uh, resort to hair transplantation therapy where they'll actually take some hair from thicker, well, better coated, better furrier bits of the scalp and implant them into the scalp where you've lost hair and so it can buy you time but by no means it's, it's not certainly not curative. That's it for this week. Our doctors will be back with me next week for more Ask the Naked Scientist. But don't forget you can also catch them on the Naked Scientist podcast, which you can find on the Naked Scientist website, www.nakedscientist.com. The Naked Scientists are sponsored by the Wellcome Trust, the EPSRC and UK Fast. For more information, look us up online at nakedscientists.com. 